Good to see you. I'm Luke. Uh, this is Hillary, and that's Zach McClellan. They're married. This is not a marriage counseling session. Oh, here. it isn't. Um, <laughs> I want to say hello to all of our other campuses, the Bel Air and Edgewood and Abingdon and Aberdeen, uh, soon to come, and those watching online. We're starting a new series today, as we've said, and it's the kind of thing, open it up to anyone who wants to ask a question. You can do it. You can send it in to it at mountaincc.org. It's the kind of thing we've done before, and uh, it feels important to do, and it actually feels like a really good idea until the questions start coming in, <laughs> and you re- realize, wow, this is, this is going to be hard. But it, we're asking hard questions, but we're asking good questions. I mean, we're all wrestling with things. We all wonder about things, and so it's important that we're doing it. Um, we're, uh, we're here not as people who know it all by any means, but we're just trying to help uh, lead us through and be learners and see what God has to say to us. We're in this series. We're going to try to get through as many questions as we can, and we'll do multiple questions each weekend. We'll post some video responses online as well. We're going to find that some of the questions will, will feel kind of lighter, maybe a little less at stake, and then others are going to be kind of heavy and, and weighty. But regardless, the answers that we give, it's not like the full treatise, okay? We're just trying to gain some perspective and really learn how do we think about some of these things. How could we approach and navigate these issues? And I think they'll be valuable kind of having a more bite-sized approach as opposed to kind of a full book-length treatment. So our posture is important here. We want to be open and humble and receptive and uh, kind and gentle throughout the process. We, we're just, we're trying to see what God has to say about this. It's not about what we think. It's, it, it, the best we can do is try to open ourselves to God's perspective and allow God to say whatever he wants to say about any of the questions that we're asking. I think about um, the church leader, Paul. He uh, wrote a bunch of the New Testament, and he's writing to this church, a bunch of people who had questions, and they were sorting through issues. They were even questioning some of his methods and his reputation, and he responds to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, look, we, we live in the world, but we don't wage war like the world does. The, the weapons, so to speak, that we fight with, they're, they're not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds, to demolish arguments, anything that would set itself up against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. We're trying to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. That's what this series is about. We're not going to wage war like the world does, where I kind of get my opinion and get uh, all of my people over here, and we're polarized from that, those people over there, and then we shout at each other, and nobody hears anything. That's not what we're going to do. We're going to open ourselves to God's perspective. When there's complexity and nuance, we're going to live in that tension and and be okay with it and honor it and trust that God's going to lead us through and take captive every thought we have about a subject and make it obedient to Christ. That's the goal of today. It's the goal of this series. And I think, Zach, you're All right. Here we go. Here we go. Oh, he right. hasn't even said anything yet. I know. Clap you already started clapping and said nothing. <laughs> well, uh, you guys are probably going to get real, real excited about this one. We're going to go after weed, marijuana, <laughs> the first topic we're jumping into. Look at you. Oh, 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 weed. What, you say marijuana? Yes, we're jumping into marijuana. So, 
first things first, how, we're going to ask the, the larger question of how, we sh- how should we as Christians or followers of Jesus view marijuana? And um, before we get excited and start jumping in and, and, and having this discussion, we want to define what it is specifically. Um, marijuana is the part of the cannabis plant in which tetrahydrocannabol, which is THC, and that's where it resides. THC resides in this part of this plant. And the THC is the psychoactive agent uh, that is the butt of the controversy. That uh, medical communities and science communities are going back and forth on what that actually does to the human body and the positive effects and also the negative effects. So yay science, right? So that's what we're starting with. That's what marijuana is. And it's helpful to know what it is before we jump into a conversation. So a couple stats we want to know. Recreational weed, use of weed, is legalized in 11 of the 50 states right now. The newest state is going to be in uh, Illinois in 2020, starting in January. My mom is watching from California. It's legal there. Uh, And so we grew up around it. It's around us. And um, the legalized use of medical weed, though, is legalized in 30 of the 50 states. And that seems to be growing uh, faster. 122 million people have used weed at least once in the United States. That's just under half of the country. And I thought this one was the the, the most fascinating. Among the active users of marijuana right now, 30 to 49-year-olds actually make up 51% of the active users, and 18 to 29-year-olds make up 30% of the active users of weed. So 80% is under the age of 49. So it's helpful to kind of see that. Uh, I don't know how that strikes you. You might be bubbling up. You might be ready to jump in and have a comment or a question or two. And that's good. We're in a place where we have freedom of thought and we can kind of live in that tension. But I do want to jump into the questions that you might be asking or a, a, a step deeper into what these questions uh, are and who these, and who these folks are coming from and where they're coming from. And this one is, listen to this one. I woke up one morning recently and I could not feel my hands. I visited six different physicians, used painkillers, numerous therapy visits, and the pain seemed to persist. And then I did the unthinkable. I asked about medical marijuana. Grew up in the church, and my faith really didn't have a stance on what it was, so I didn't really know if it was right or wrong. But I asked, and I began to use. And the excruciating pain receded, and the fog in my head lifted. And I laid in bed and wept for an hour after the first couple times I used it? Have I lost my morals or my conviction for using? Ooh! <laughs> it's a little bit deeper, right? Ooh, man, it's a he- that's a heavy one. What about this one? My son insists on using marijuana because it's begun to alleviate his crippling depression. You know, he spends days in bed when the depression sweeps over him. And I can't see, I can't, I can't stand to see him like that. And I would venture out to see that you wouldn't want to see your son or daughter or granddaughter or grandson like that as well. Now, recreational use of marijuana is legal in our state. And I have no inclination of telling him to stop. Is this okay with God? There we go. Wow. The use of weed goes beyond just general stats that we might throw up on the screen and see and and, and categorize people in. There's stories behind the users who are using marijuana. And that is what we want to tap into and see and create space for as people of faith. Now, I think we're, I hope that we're beginning to see that, those complexities that are behind that. So when we're stuck, like faithful Christians, we turn to scripture, right? That is where we got to turn to. What does the Bible say about marijuana? 
Well, quite frankly, don't say much. <laughs> don't say a lot. Um, and that's okay. Because even though the Bible doesn't talk about a lot of things, it does give us some perspective in which we are called to live through. And it gives us a trajectory in which we see, and we say we are called to, to, to live in a way that God has called us to be. And that's the perspective we have to put on when we look at this. And this is where it comes from. It comes from 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Paul is talking to the church of Corinth about sexual uh, um, uh, purity and sexual struggles. And he says this, Don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Wow, they are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you and whom you have received from God. Now, that's a healthy view of bodies, right? That's a healthy view of our bodies. So God is the author of all of it. And don't we know that it's a temple for the Holy Spirit to move through. What a privilege that God gets a chance to dwell in us and then use us so that we get to move the good news forward of Jesus. And so we ought to take care of our bodies, right? So this doesn't really say yes or no, right? But it does give us a perspective in which we view our bodies and how we operate when we put things inside of those temples or the the temple, the dwelling place. And so here it is. If your use of marijuana is doing damage to that temple or dwelling place, I may have to ask you to reprioritize. God may be asking you to reprioritize. But this is a reminder for for all of us who use substances, any, any substance, is that we ought to be on watch. We ought to be on watch on whether the substance is really doing damage to that internal dwelling place in which God is living and is ready to move through us. Your physical health, your mental health, your relational health, and most importantly, your spiritual health matters, friends. And God dwells in all of it. And it is a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing. And he wants to use you in that ways. And so if your use of a substance is affecting any of that, you might want to reprioritize. Now, so we've got that healthy framework. Our body's a temple, right? So, But check this out when Paul takes it a step deeper in 1 Timothy. He's going after Timothy and he says, hey, Timothy, check this out. In chapter 5, he says, stop drinking only water. Wait, what are you saying, Paul? Use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illness. Ooh, all right. So let me clarify here, all right. This is not some universal verse that we can apply to our alcohol consumption indiscriminately. No, 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 no. That's not it. But rather, this is a specific call to Timothy to live within the boundaries, which is the body is a temple that Paul has already set forth, to pay attention to the things around him and use them accordingly to the healing of his body. Not the destruction of the body. So this might be why we use certain substances or painkillers or caffeine to bring healing back to the temple that's been, to get back to our whole self and so we can function and face the day. And this brings us to the use of medical marijuana. This is it, the medical marijuana. It's legal in the state of Maryland. There are people who are watching online where it's legal recreationally and medically. Um, And so we want to talk a little bit about that real quick as we finish up. We'll say a few things about medical marijuana. If you are using medical marijuana, number one, know where it comes from. Know where it comes from. Just like any other substance, anything we put in our bodies, we have to pay attention to where it's coming from. It is way too easy these days to get something cheap and hurt ourselves more than if our intention is to heal ourselves, to hurt ourselves. And medical marijuana is no different, okay? 
Number two, trust your doctor. Trust your physician. Pay attention to your physician. Invest in them. Let them know, let them know your situation, your faith, whatever it is. Let them know and say, hey, I'm really, I'm really nervous about using medicine, you know, medical marijuana. Please talk to me about how, how this feels. And can I really use this? And what's it going to do with the side effects and the good things and the bad things? Trust your doctor and really ask them. And allow them to be honest with you. And don't let them over-prescribe uh, to you. And then number three, treat it like any other drug. Treat it like any other drug. Never abuse it. Don't take advantage of the system. Don't get a medical marijuana card and go smoke it recreationally. Don't do that. Don't take advantage of the systems in place. And have accountability partners. Have accountability partners that are checking in on you and use it as prescribed because it is a healing agent uh, in, the med- in the medicinal world. So use it as prescribed. Now, recreationally, this is where the rubber hits the road, right? Uh-oh, recreationally. Now, first, it's illegal in our state, the state of Maryland. So I do think the Bible would kind of coach us to stay in the bounds of the law and not, ne- and not use it recreationally. So you have that you have to kind of pay attention to. And that should be kind of a hard no. But... We're not going to think reactively. We're going to think proactively, right? And it's going to be legal in, a, in probably all 50 states down the road. And so let's think proactively as people of faith and create a healthy perspective on recreational use. So instead of answering that question, I want to answer your question with the question of mine. And the question is, as we finish up, why do we eat, drink, or smoke the things we do? That's the question. Now, there's multiple answers. Each story is unique, right? But I do think the most common thing is healing. We want to feel whole. We want to feel back. We want to feel like ourselves in the way that God has created us. So picture this as a meter. You have a meter here, right? This is you living your best life. You're a whole. You're on mission. You're working for God. You're doing everything. You're living. Your spiritual life is great. Everything is good. And then you wake up the next morning and, oh man, okay, my knee hurts. Uh, I'm not really right mentally. I haven't really been in God's word and I'm starting to really teeter this way. And so we use the things of this world to try to help us propel us back into our whole self, right? To get us back into Uh, being our best selves and moving forward in God's mission. So, just like any other substance, alcohol, painkillers, caffeine, uh uh-oh, don't be messing with my coffee, but caffeine, (laughs) nicotine, any of those, we ought to be paying attention to why. Why are we putting those things in our bodies? Not in a negative sense, but just pay attention and ask the question, why are we putting these things in our bodies? Is it providing some relief of some sort? Some good relief? Is it a healthy way to relieve that stress that we might be feeling? Have you asked that question? Or is it covering up something deeper in your life that needs to be addressed, not by a substance or not by something or a chemical or anything like that? Is it revealing something deeper that needs to be addressed in your life? And if it's just for pleasure and you say, okay, I do it, I do it socially because it's fun and I love it, is that the only way that you can enjoy yourself? I want to ask that question. Is that the only way that you can enjoy yourself? If so, then that might be the problem, that this substance or whatever you're putting in your body is lording over you and is controlling the way you work. You have to have that five cups of coffee to get through the day. That might be a problem. You want to kind of look at that. You have to take that blunt. You have to take that hit to get yourself through the day. So you want to kind of pay attention to that. Just pay attention. 
Just pay attention to that. So you want to have a, a, a mindful, uh, be mindful of the effects it has on you. And I know substances feel great in the moment, right? They give you that jolt. They give you that excitement. But it's those after highs that are just as important as the ones when you're on and using a substance. So we ought to be really paying attention to what happens after we come down on those highs. Are we destroying our families? Are we destroying our relationships around us? Are we destroying our relationship with God? Is it affecting the dwelling place of God that's in you and built in you? He's there. He's ready. He's knocking on the door. He wants to use you. Is it affecting that? So, and if you don't trust yourself, final point here, if you don't trust yourself, ask someone. (laughs) Ask someone. And let me clarify. I mean someone who loves God and loves people. Ask someone in your life who loves God and loves people. I guarantee you there are folks in your life that really care about you and that, are, 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 that, are, that have some thoughts on what you're doing and the usage that you might be using and, and what you're doing, and they really care about your well-being. So ask them. They're going to give you the honest answers. Is this substance really affecting my relationship with you? Is it affecting my relationship with my family and my friends around? Is it affecting my relationship with God? Ask those people, and they'll give you the honest truth. Is it changing me too much? Is it messing with me too much? You want to ask that question as well and ask your friends and your family that as well. And hey, friends, you've got a church. Oh, man, you've got a church that loves you. You have a church that loves you. We're here. We're ready. We're going to walk this journey together and live in the tension and the nuance of what substances do to our bodies. And so we're here to be with you and to walk with you through that. I love that. And the church wants to help and loves you. So... I think that's all I got, all right? Is that, is that okay? I mean, I think that's all I got. So let's move on to the next question. I'm nervous. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thanks, Woo. Zach. Thanks, Zach. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a newer question a lot of us might be asking for the first time. But our next question is actually one uh, that people have been asking since the very beginning of time. This is it. Why don't I feel close to God? What do I do when God feels far away? Are my prayers really working? I've been doing this Christian thing for a while, but I don't feel close to God the way other people say that they do. Am I supposed to feel something warm and fuzzy? I mean, what does God even feel like when he's close? Um, Am I supposed to hear God's voice out loud? Uh, I've been doing this a long time, but I don't know if God's really here. I'm showing up to church, but I'm still lonely. I'm singing the songs, but something still feels empty. It's a great sermon, but I'm still struggling, struggling to connect. You see, we ask these questions in the middle of uh, everyday rhythms and everyday life, uh, but it puts up the steam when we start to ask these questions when things get hard, when the treatment isn't working, when the divorce feels inevitable, when crisis hits. We begin to feel that God obviously isn't close, that God stopped answering our prayers and maybe even abandoned us. And friends, if that's you, you're not alone. I've asked all of those questions. Um, And people, again, since the beginning of time, ever since brokenness entered the picture, people have felt like God is far away. So I hope you can find a little peace in knowing that you're not alone. But even if you haven't asked that question yourself, chances are someone you love or is close with, they're asking that question right now. They're wondering, why can't I get connected with God? And they need you to walk alongside of them as they're wrestling through that. Um, so perhaps one of the first things we got to do is ask more questions. We got to say, well, what are my expectations when it comes to feeling close with God? Do I have some type of misunderstanding of how that works or how it worked for people in the Bible? 
Additionally, we got to ask, is my view of connecting with God limited? Maybe you were told you got to do X, Y, and Z, and then everything is just rosy and perfect. But friends, that's not true. It's not. There's lots of different ways to connect with God. But what I love about turning to scripture is that we see countless stories of people who are heroes in our faith, who are doing awesome things. At some point in their life, they did feel like God stopped listening or that God was distant and sometimes that God even abandoned them. Remember the story of Abraham and Sarah. God had this great promise to them. Through you, I'm going to make this great nation. I'm going to bless you and bless all people through you. But God, when was that uh, promise going to be fulfilled? Because Abraham and Sarah, they weren't getting any younger, and they had no children. And I'm sure that they wondered, how long, Lord? Are you still there? You think about David, uh, this great warrior and successful king, and yeah, he made some really bad decisions, and he had some brokenness in his life, but he was still called a man after God's own heart. And we read through the Psalms, and we hear some of his cries, um, asking God, where are you? In Psalm 13, 1, he says, how long, Lord, must I wait? Will you forget me forever? How long will you turn your face away from me? Another one of my favorite examples, is a, it's a modern-day example, Mother Teresa. Like, if anybody's doing anything right, it's her. Am I right? Like, she dedicates her life to serving the poor and the sick. She gives it all to God. But she even has this moment of doubt, and she writes to her spiritual director and says this, In my soul, I feel just that terrible pain of loss, of God not wanting me, of God not being God of God not really existing. There's countless other stories of people who have felt the same, even if it was in everyday life and rhythms that God felt distant or in the midst of crisis and heartache. But what I love about all of these examples and what we see in scripture is that every single one of them clung to hope. And friends, that's what we gotta do too. Hope is a beautiful, powerful thing. Now, we're not talking about some type of wishful hope, like, woohoo, I hope it's all good. No, we're talking about a deep hope that's actively resting in God's faithfulness. It is trusting in the expectancy that Jesus is who he says he is. When God feels far and absent, we got to cling to hope. We have to posture ourselves to believe in what is true, not what we feel. Feelings are good things, don't get me wrong. Like feelings and emotions help us relate with one another. God's given to us to experience the world around us. But our feelings don't get to dictate what's true about God's character. Just like like my feelings about eating salad, which you all should know is like disdain, uh, doesn't dictate what is true about nutrition. So in the same way, our feelings don't dictate, dictate what is true about God's character. Jesus does. That's Jesus' job. Our feelings don't dictate what is true. Jesus does. So if we look to scripture and we look at Jesus' life, we see him teaching us all about God's character and his interactions with others. You see the way he tells the parable of the shepherd who goes after the lost sheep. It shows that God's character is one that is a rescuer. It's one that goes and seeks the lost and the wandering. The way Jesus extends grace and mercy to the woman caught in adultery shows that God's character is one that is forgiving and loving. The way that Jesus healed so many people in his ministry shows us that God's character is one that mourns with us in our sorrows, who does indeed hear our prayers. And when Jesus is teaching and working with his disciples, preparing them um, for what's ahead, the journey to the cross, he's trying to comfort them and he's telling them that the spirit is coming. This is what he says in John 14. Don't be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
If you love me, you will obey my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper who will be with you forever, forever. That helper is the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it doesn't know him, but you know him because he lives in you and will be with you. Jesus is telling his disciples that the spirit is coming. Jesus isn't walking amongst them forever, but God's spirit is going to come down. And it's the spirit of truth that helps guide us and comfort us and points us back to God's truth. And we're living out that mission today. We're living out the great commandment that Jesus gave to his followers as we're on mission, making more and better disciples. He promises us that. He says, and remember, I am with you always until the end of time. God's spirit is here. Jesus promises us that. And all those stories of faithful people that we read about in scripture who are asking, how long, O Lord? Well, for Abraham and Sarah, we know that God fulfilled the promise and they had a son in their old age. For David, he finishes that song with hope, but I trust in your faithfulness and your love. My heart is filled with joy because you will save me. Not that you did save me, but I'm hoping and I know that you will. And one beautiful thing that I love so much about Mother Teresa is that most people don't know It's never clear in any of her writing if she was ever able to shake that doubt. But she still showed up. She still loved the Lord. She was faithful and obedient and served the poor and loved her neighbor until the day she died at 87 years old. Friends, the dark night of the soul is nothing to despair. The valley isn't something to fear because what we know about the valley is that God's in the valley with us. No matter how dark or how cold or how quiet, And no matter how steep the hike back up the mountain is with its loose rocks and thorny vines, God is with us. We just got to hold on to hope. And the same is true uh, even in not crisis mode when everything's fine, the day-to-day rhythms. If you're wondering, I still don't feel connected to God or the ways I used to connect with God just don't feel like they're working anymore. That's where we cling to hope too. One tool that's been super helpful for me is this book called Sacred Pathways by Gary Thomas. It's an easy read with just practical tools and different perspectives about ways to engage with God. Ways that people in scripture engage with God. Maybe that would be something helpful for you. You know, I've spent most Sundays of my life in church. I'm grateful for parents who taught me how to read the Bible, who read the Bible with me, who taught me how to pray and prayed with me. And I'm going to keep doing those things because they're really important for my faith. They're super informative for my relationship with Jesus. But I've also learned that I connect with God when I'm outside. I connect with God every time I pause long enough to watch a sunrise or a sunset. And I just am compelled by those beautiful colors. The spirit in me uh, is alive. It's a glimmer of heaven. Every time I'm at the ocean and I smell the salty air and put my toes in the sand, the spirit in me is compelled with gratitude, thanking God for the beauty he's created. And when I pray, I like to hold on to something. There's nothing special about these beads. Um, But when I'm anxious or nervous or just something's heavy on my heart, it helps ground me and focus. And I hold on to this cross and I'm reminded, Jesus, you're what I need. Um, And I can go on and on, but that's the best answer I I have for if God feels distant or you don't feel close to God, trust that God is still there. Jesus promises us that. Hold on to hope, keep showing up, and keep trusting Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Well, time, time for one more question. It's related to that one. It also is about as old as time. And it's pretty daunting and very heavy, and I will, I'm very unlikely to give you a satisfying answer. So, um, 
nevertheless, here's the way one person expressed it. She sent this into the email address. I know suffering is a huge argument against a good God, and we cannot answer why it happens. But I ask anyway, for all those who've been tormented unspeakably, babies, children, the disabled, etc., often by those who they should have trusted, how can God watch that, sit with that, not provide rescue, comfort, healing, or justice? I uh, can't solve that in, in 12 minutes. But uh, It's the classic question, right? How could God let good, uh, bad things happen to good people? Or said, said another way, if God is all-powerful and all-good, why? where does evil come from? Why does it exist? So you can ask this question in a setting like this or in a classroom, and you can philosophize about it. But most often this question gets asked in a hospital room or a similar kind of environment where there's real pain and there's the presence of intense emotion. And so that really needs to inform us when we're answering this question. And I think uh, the approach here is just to provide a few uh, handles to, to grab onto as we encounter what is maybe the most confounding question of all time. And the first handle to get a hold of in response is silence. That is the best first response to this question almost every time. If someone asks you something like this, be quick to listen and slow to speak because there's pain behind it and you don't know how much. And any treatment of this question has to reckon with the reality of pain. So we don't reach um, for the platitudes pale. Okay, maybe, I don't know if you've seen this before. It's good to keep it within arm's reach, especially in moments of discomfort or like other people's discomfort. And then I just, you know, lay it on you. Hey, everything happens for a reason. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. God works all things together for good. It could always be worse. This is God's will for you. God gave you this so that you would be getting a greater blessing. If you never have any hard times, you wouldn't enjoy the good times. You know how that goes, right? Um, Now, even, even the ones of those that are true, this is not the time for those things. Because it just skims over the pain. It refuses to recognize reality. And the Bible gives voice to those who suffer, to those who have questions. It doesn't silence them with platitudes. Which brings us to the next handle to hold on to in addressing this question, and it's solidarity. Solidarity just refers to the ties that bind. Okay, we all have some things in common. We all experience pain. We all have questions. We've all had feelings. We've all gotten angry and, and grieved over the reality of suffering. Now, it's not to say you know, all our pain is the same or that all pain is the same like a broken fingernail is the same as a, you know, suffering in a Nazi prison camp or something. But if you're talking to someone who's experienced the worst of the worst and they're asking, wrestling with why, even if you haven't been through the worst, you make an effort to feel with them. You don't gloss over the pain or minimize it. You, you empathize. Connect with something in you that knows the feeling behind that question. The anger, the, the grief, the, the frustration, the hopelessness. That, that's what the Bible does. Like Hillary was saying, the writers of the Bible, they know what it's like to experience pain. They know what it's like to ask questions. And they stand in solidarity with all those who suffer. And we must do that as well. And then the final handle to hold on to, if we're going to have a chance at getting some proper perspective on this question, it's going to sound simple and it may be too trite when I say it, but follow me out here. It's see Jesus. Here's what I mean. The Bible doesn't tell us where evil comes from. There's not some satisfying answer ready to be uncovered about why bad things happen. And that can be frustrating, but uh, look, finding the answer to the question, where does evil come from, doesn't eliminate evil. It doesn't do anything to fix it. So what the Bible does is uh, it meets us all on common ground, and it, it says to all of us, granted that something is terribly wrong in the world, and we all know it, 
Let me show you what God is doing to fix it. That's what the Bible holds out to us. And, and from beginning to end, the Bible is desperate to immerse us into the story of a God who loves the world and is on mission to heal and restore and redeem and to bless the world and to overcome evil and to uh, do that in the midst of people who are bent on rebelling against him and frustrating his purposes. God's like a parent trying to brush his, brush his kid's teeth while the kid is eating Oreos or something. Uh, now, if only it were a comical story like that. There's lots of scenes in the story, lots of things that we could talk about, lots of movement, and all of it reveals the heart of God and the power of God to do something about evil, and the story centers around Jesus. It comes to its climax in Jesus, and in particular, in Jesus' suffering. There is a cross at the center of the story. Now, this, this kind of feels deep, all right, and that's well, it's sort of the point. This is more like, uh, you know, let this kind of ruminate. It's more like gather on the rug for a story as opposed to let me go to the board and solve this problem and we'll have our answer, which is, is a unique approach. I mean, I don't know of other religions that talk about their God suffering or, or dying. Christians, however, are invited to meditate on the suffering and death of their God and allow that to reframe their understanding of suffering and evil and God's relationship to those things. So, again, there's lots we could talk about, but just follow me to the center of the story, okay? Jesus, innocent, holy, righteous, I mean, a good dude, right? And, at the same time, the maker of heaven and earth, king of the universe in bodily form, hanging on a cross, gasping, bleeding, crying, naked, alone, judged to be a criminal, I mean, that's a God-forsaken moment. It's, it's grotesque, and anybody watching can see that. And what the Bible does is say, yeah, granted, but don't just look at it from that perspective. Let me give you another vantage point, and so you can see what's actually going on. And it peels back the curtain to reveal that what, to the naked eye, is the execution of a criminal. It says what actually is going on is that's the exaltation of a king. You're like, no, no, that's crazy. That doesn't make any sense. I know. But, but if you're a Christian, that's what you're saying you believe. Now hang with me here. You're saying that, that the cross is, where, is the throne where this king sits. That death march through mocking and jeering crowds is if the Bible reframes it like, like a ticker tape parade to the sound of trumpets because in the cross and the empty tomb, God is transforming suffering and defeating evil. Again, the point of the Bible is to say God is doing something about this mess. See Jesus. Jesus says, see my resurrected body and the scars that I still bear. At the center of the story is an atrocity. You look at that and say, how could such a bad thing happen to such a good person? And and it's not answering the question per se. It's just about recognizing that in that event, God, who for a long time has proven his ability to heal and to redeem, in that event, God is transforming suffering and defeating evil and making all things new. You peel back the curtain and you immerse yourself into the story. you got to just kind of let the, the meaning sink in. That's the invitation of the Bible. And then the rest of the New Testament, it, it reflects back on this awful execution of a criminal. And it continues to claim that 
in that event, God was loving his creation and transforming suffering into glory and defeating evil and fulfilling his promises to fix the world once and for all. When when you see this awful thing that's happening to Jesus, you're watching God respond to the evil that has confounded people for all time and say, I'm doing something about it in a way that no one else can. And then... The Bible says you you see Jesus suffering and that gives you a new way to view all suffering of all kinds because as we know, there's still a time when suffering and death exist. I mean, it's still going on and innocent people are going to continue to suffer. In Romans chapter eight, Paul's one of them. He knows what that's like. He lives in this world and he describes, it's like all creation is groaning as in the pains of labor. And a bunch of women who've been through that say, amen. And we know that creation's been subjected to decay, Paul says. And people living in the world are going to suffer. Now, Paul reminds us, because of Jesus, game changer, we don't suffer alone. The spirit who raised Jesus from the dead helps us in our weakness intercedes for us and groans with us to sustain us that God is at work for good in the ugly chaos of our suffering he's doing that for us just as he did for Jesus oh no 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 you say no my my sister died my kid is sick I was abused and Paul's not minimizing any of those things it's just he, he his ultimate punchline is that even with the presence of all of that ugly stuff Nothing can stop God's good, redemptive, healing, comforting, loving promises from coming true. He believes that because it didn't stop him at the cross. The the Bible doesn't say why suffering happens, but it does say nothing can stop God from transforming it into glory. He did it for Jesus. He'll do it for you. The Bible doesn't say where evil comes from, but it says nothing can stop God from defeating evil and eradicating it from the new world he is bringing about. The Bible doesn't say how long we're going to have to endure the pain, but it's very loud about the fact that nothing will stop God from being present with those who suffer, giving them strength in the moment, even in the, the hardest, darkest, rockiest places. Nothing can stop God from bearing the fruit of peace and joy, and hope, and love. And Paul, he's, he's working himself into a lather, and he gets to the place where he just says, I mean, who, who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? I mean, what's going to do it? Is trouble going to do it? Is, is hardship or persecution, speaking as one who knows, is, is famine going to do it, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all of these things, that I've tasted in all of those things, just like Christ was conquering through his suffering, we who are in Christ are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And that's what gives rise to his conviction that neither death nor life, angels or demons, the present or the future, nor any powers, any height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. You gotta see Jesus. And so those things that are clear and that are announced from the story of Scripture, you know, I, I don't know when, when an individual asks why. I, I don't know why. 
and, and I don't know what to do other than to respond to the Bible's invitation to, to immerse myself in the story of the God who can and does do something about it. At the center of that story is the cross, where God was transforming suffering and defeating evil and ushering in new creation from the ashes. And that God promises to be present with all those who are suffering. So, you know, you look to the naked eye and you, you see kids suffering. And the Bible's not saying that's, that, that's good. It, it's awful. It's not telling you why it happened, but it says not even that can stop God from transforming suffering and defeating evil and bringing about the new world he promised. It can't stop it. To the naked eye, you see natural disasters sweeping away homes and destroying lives, and it's awful, and the Bible doesn't deny it, and it doesn't say why it happens, but it's saying that nothing, not even that, can stop God's promises from coming true, and nothing can prevent him from being present in the moment and caring for his people and sustaining them through the chaos. And you, you see what to the naked eye, I mean, go on and on. We got our own list. We see people dying too early and senseless violence in the streets and humans being trafficked and treated as, as if they were property. And the Bible doesn't say why it's happening, but it points us to the only one who is loving enough and powerful enough to do something about it. And the only one who can bring hope and healing in spite of it. And it says none of it can stop God's promises from coming true. God is not just watching. He's not just sitting there. The more you understand who he is and, and what his story is about, he, he is providing rescue and comfort and healing and justice in, in a way that no one else can. He is our only hope. And the only way you're able to gain that perspective is by immersing yourself in the story and seeing Jesus. So that, that answer may not satisfy. But if, if you find yourself asking that question, if you find yourself suffering, uh, let that be an opportunity for you to respond to the invitation, to, to enter into the story, to immerse yourself more deeply in the story that God is writing that includes you, you do that, it will refine your perspective on God. It will refine your perspective on this question, and it will refine you. You know, just running the other way and ditching God because there's too many bad things that happen, that move doesn't put you in any better position to answer this question. And it certainly doesn't put you in any better position to, to deal with the evil and suffering that are so obviously present in the world. And, and maybe, uh, maybe you're not suffering right now. Well, Open your ears to the cries of those who are and let that be your invitation to enter the story, to, in Jesus' name, move toward those who suffer and to be God's agent of healing, of strength, of hope, of peace, of presence and blessing because we all know what it's like to suffer. Our Lord knows what it's like to suffer. But he who died is he who was raised and he is still at work in the world. He's just changed bodies. He lives in us and through us, he is still fulfilling his promises, transforming suffering and defeating evil and bringing new creation as only he can do. He's doing something about the mess.
And he invites us to get messy and do something about it too. So we enter um, every week, actually, we meditate on Jesus' suffering. On this central part of our story, we share in a communion meal together. We, we reckon with the fact there's a cross standing at the center of our story. It's a meal of communion, and it, it reminds us that as people who experience the reality of pain and suffering, that we have a God who bears with us in our weakness, that in spite of the ways that sin or defeat or, or pain beats us down, our Lord is redeeming and restoring and forgiving and making us new again. And maybe you have some pain. Uh, maybe you're crying out to God right now, and, and whether you don't know if he's hearing you or not, uh, this is a moment to, to come to God, to speak to God, for he's made himself available to us. And, and whether you feel God or not, may you be strengthened by what's true, his promises to you. In Christ, your suffering will be transformed and he will sustain you along the way. And as we share in the, the bread and the cup and those who are serving communion at any of our campuses can get ready to serve it now. As we share in the bread and the cup, which are reminders of Jesus' suffering, May we uh, come to him and call on him for, for what is needed in the moment for you. Strength, peace, forgiveness, healing. This is what this moment is for. Let's meet our God in it right now. Let's pray. God, thank you for the ways that you are at work in us, at work in this church, uh, at work through the great story that you've been telling for a long time. And we have seen your faithfulness and we are, as a result, people of hope. Even when we can't feel it or know it or Uh, have difficulty trusting you completely, I pray that you would encourage our hope and remind us of the things that are true. As we ask, ask a lot of questions and as we grope about for answers, I pray that you would make yourself present to us. Reframe our minds and encourage us in, in our hearts and our, our spirits. We need you, Lord Jesus, and we thank you for the ways that you share your wisdom and your love with us. And we meet you in this moment, ready to say thank you for uh, the sacrifice that you made on our behalf. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.